This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. spend uh, the day looking at one verse. Now, it is important for me to uh, to take a minute and do an overview of the book of Romans. And uh, I, I want to say this, that there's a reason why I do it. It's not just because I'm trying to fill time in a, a sermon. Uh, but the reason why I do that is because I think there's a great tragedy that takes place in the church. And that is that people see things in bits and pieces rather than in totals. Uh, we're used to sound bites and tweets and all those kinds of things, and we don't ever want to watch something or read something that's too long. or, or what. So we, we get into these kinds of sections where we're studying one verse, and we can so zone in on this one verse that we miss how we got here. And so we need to take time every week to kind of remember all that we've learned through Romans, and then also catch up for those who have not been involved with this series, because there is much of what we have learned that plays into what we are going to learn today. Uh, so remember, we want to see this in totals. The first thing we learned in the first three chapters of Romans is that we all have sinned. We've all sinned. That means the line is flat. That means those of you in this room who go, yeah, I know that I have sinned because I've done this, this, and this. And then there's others in this room who's like, well, I haven't done as many things as everybody else. I'm not as bad. I've, I've, I've done the things. I've gone to church. I was raised in a good family. I had all these kinds of things. And we rely on our self-righteousness to say, God must love me because look at how many good things I have done. What what. What we see in the first three chapters is those who have sinned outrightly, those who have rebelliously sinned, and those who religiously or self-righteously, pridefully say that they don't need Jesus are all on the same line. That we all are in need of a Savior. And the ways that we sinned is that we have preferred creation over the Creator. That is, we want God's stuff and we don't want Him. The other way is that we believe the lies over the truth. We think we're smarter than God. The other way is we would rather have all of the worship and glory come upon us rather than giving God all the worship and glory that he deserves. And even with those three chapters where we spent a big chunk of time diving into the depths of sin, what we saw take place at a turning point in, in, in Romans, Romans 3 chapter verse, uh, verse 20, is that we saw that God had not forsaken us. That even in our rebellion and sin against Him, God had not forsaken us. Isn't it amazing that when we really look at who we are and our sinfulness and how much we need a Savior, isn't it amazing how much we can see what true, genuine love is by looking at what God has done for us through Jesus? That's a good place for the church to say amen. God is love, church. There's no way that we can know love apart from God. It is through the gospel that we can know what love is. God saw your sin. He knew your sin. He was 
He, was, he, was, he saw all your rebellion and all your self-righteousness and all your belief that you should get all the glory. He saw all of that and knew all of that. And instead of leaving us to ourselves, he entered into our world and showed us how much he loved us and he was patient with, with us and he was kind with us and he bore the weight of our sins. He bore our burdens. He took upon himself all of our sins and it was nailed to the cross with him and he died the death we should have died. God shows us in Christ his love. He hasn't forsaken us. And when he shows us this real love, there's something in us that rejects that kind of love because what we like to do is say, I need that, but I can pay you back. And instead of receiving that by faith, chapter 4 shows us that people try to receive it by works. We try to go, okay, God, I see how much you love me, but what I'll do is I'll work really hard to show you how much I'm worthy of that love. But what he shows us in chapter 4 is that the only way we can receive this gift is not by our works, not by who we are, not by our efforts, but by faith and trust in him. It is his work alone. What do we get? What we get in salvation is the most glorious gift that you can receive. What you get is that you were severed from the one who is good and right and pure and loving, and you were separated in because of his sin, but he showed how genuine and pure and right his love was, and what he did in salvation is unite us back with him. We are in union with God through Christ. We're in union with Christ. We are his children. We have been adopted. We have been brought into this family, and not only are we in this family but God has placed himself in us. So we have been brought into love. And by his spirit, his love has been put into us. Now, what is true about Jesus, his love, his purity, his righteousness, all those things is now true about us. Because of this relationship, we have been brought in. And he has, by his spirit, been placed in us. He lives in us and through us. Now, when you hear the truths of the gospel like this, Romans 11 shows us that the only response to this is true worship. So, theology leads to doxology. That's this idea that this kind of love should blow us away. Not to the point where we go, I need to earn your favor, I need to earn your grace, but to the point where we go, how magnificent and wonderful and pure and right is your love. It blows our minds how good God's love is. And it leads us to a place of complete surrender. I need that. I submit myself to you. I worship you. That in view of God's mercy, we present our bodies as true worship. Not only does theology lead to orthodoxy or theology to doxology, orthopraxy leads, orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy, which is true love. And what we're studying in verse 12, that out of this heart of worship flows something. Now, here's where the rubber really hits the road, my friends, is when we say that we have experienced this true love and that it has been placed in us by the Spirit. Can you see now 
how transformative statements like that are to where it would also demand that that love flow out of us in practice. And what we see in Romans 12 and what we've been studying for the last four weeks now has been what is genuine love? Because Romans 12, 9 says genuine love, not as just another command, but as a title for everything we're about to cover. It's this subtitle that Paul is saying, genuine love, and then he gives all of these things. And without that big, that big title over the top and then all of the other bullet points that fall underneath it, you could read Romans 12 as just kind of random chicken soup for the soul statements. What we're accustomed to as just sound bites. That we don't see things in totals, we see, see things in pieces. And we start separating all of these things to mean just different practices. And we kind of put them in a, in a checklist. And what Paul is trying to show us in Romans 12 is this is genuine love. When we've experienced genuine love, this is the kind of genuine love that flows out of us. And this list will really frustrate you who love checklists. It'll drive you bonkers. Because it doesn't say, here's what genuine love is. You spend this much time with somebody. You say this. You do this. You act this way. It really pushes into the heart. Because if you've ever been in a true, loving, committed relationship, you realize this. A checklist doesn't work. It doesn't work. Not in that scenario. Because there's sometimes you say something. Sometimes you don't say something. Sometimes... You push into it and pursue, and other times you have to pull away. There's some times that you have to speak boldly, and other times you just have to sit, and, 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 and then you try it one way, and it works that way, and the next time you try it the same way, and it doesn't work. Why? Because genuine love comes from a deeper place than just a checklist, just a set of rules. And what this shows us is it comes from the Spirit. Love is the true measuring stick of a transformed life. Genuine love. You can't act this. This comes from a deeper place. And what we saw in, real ni- in verse 9 is it pushes against some of our cultural norms. It sees what is evil. It hates evil. Love hates. Isn't that amazing? Love hates evil. And it clings to good. A lot of us feel like if we're going to love somebody, we just overlook evil. No, this shows us that if we truly Love, we hate what is evil, we cling to what is good. Verse 10 shows us that love is deeper or closer than family and deeper than friendship. And, and it's kind of this, this family idea. Paul makes this word up and he puts in there, family. It's this deep covenantal relationship. And then verse 11 Uh, Wayne did an incredible job last week talking about real love passionately serves God while it actively loves people. If you didn't hear that message last week, it was powerful. The illustration about brown boy was amazing, right? One thing I I learned last week is that in the ghetto, right, where he was raised, where he said he was raised, there's brown boy with his best friend Richard, right? And then there's white bread with his best friend, Keith. I'm just trying to figure out, like, how do you get a cool nickname and then Richard? You know what I mean? And then a cool nickname and then Keith. Like, how did they not both get really cool nicknames? Like, dude, you're just Keith, okay? Uh, 
That would have been me. Just, oh, you're just lying. <laughs> but you got to listen to that message because it really pushes into serving God, and out of serving God comes love. Powerful message. Today we're going we're gonna to stand together, if we can, to read God's word. And as we're reading God's word, here's what I want you to put in your mind. Because Romans 12 is not just a bunch of pithy little soundbite statements. This is all under the header of genuine love. And if this is going to be something that we study today, this is going to be a place where we have the tendency to go, oh, he's just teaching us something to apply personally to our lives rather than tying it to genuine love. Let's read. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Let me read again. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. God, I pray that we would take these words, that they would dig deep into our hearts, that we would see what it really means to love genuinely. Thank you for your word. Speak to our hearts. Change us. Let us live this out. Let us be a church that takes these things seriously to heart. Let it challenge us, motivate us, stir us, empower us. In Jesus' name, everybody said, you may be seated. It's an interesting thing when people look at love. I've heard this a lot from people who've experienced extremely painful backgrounds. This idea that I don't know how to love and I don't know love because maybe my mother and my father didn't love me correctly. I don't know what love is, or I don't know how to love because I was in a marriage and he told me that he loved me and then he, he cheated on me and he took off on me. And so because of that, I don't know how to love and I don't know what love is. Or some close friend of mine really told me they loved me and we spent a bunch of time together and then they just left me quickly. And, and because of that, I don't know how to love. And many of us, if we are honest, really believe the only way someone knows how to love is if they have experienced love in home, in marriage, in friendship. And so because many of us have been hurt by love, if you will, then we check ourselves out and give ourselves reasons for why we don't love others in a correct way. Now I can understand that, for somebody who has no reference of love, but then there's this other side of somebody who really feels like they know how to love because they were raised in a good family or because they've had good friendships and they have all these kinds of things and they're like, man, look at my life, look at all the things I have. I really know what love is. The reality is, is what this kind of love does, what this love does that we see in scripture is take those who have never experienced love and those who think they have experienced love and crushes both of them and shows them and shows the one who has never experienced love and the one who thinks they have experienced love. He shows them both. You don't know what love is. You see, the gospel removes Every source of pride and every source and excuse of condemnation. So if we walk up to this text and say, I don't know what love is and I don't know how to love, it's going to push into you because what is going to come out of your mouth is this. I don't know Jesus. And 
if I'm saying I don't know how to love, and I get if we're saying I don't know how to love in this specific situation and I want this love that's in me to come out, or if I'm just saying I just, I, I, I only do this because you're saying I don't have the Spirit of God dwelling within me. Remember, we just went through this whole thing. The love of God so gives us an example, but it also empowers us. We lose that excuse of not experiencing love or thinking we have experiencing love once we trust and put our faith in the gospel we lose that excuse no longer can we say i don't know love and i don't know how to love we can't say that any longer because we've been given the greatest model in christ and not only just a model to look at but he has been placed in us by the Spirit so that we can actually do it. So this kind of love that we're going to look at is going to be extremely important for us not to go, I don't know this, I don't know how to do this. Why? Because the Christian loses that excuse. Not only do they lose it, it gets crushed. Because you have experienced and seen true love in Christ. And you have the power by the Spirit to live in this and walk in this. Now, is this very difficult? And this is this very uh, frustrating? And is there a lot of nuances to this once you're really living it out? Absolutely. But all the more reason you need that example and you need His Spirit. The first thing he says in verse 12 is this, rejoice in hope. And you're like, what does this have to do with loving? This sounds like we just need to have hope. So often, when you are in a genuine loving relationship and you are engaging in people's lives, what is shown often is how easily we can get discouraged when someone doesn't change as quickly as we think they should. Here, here's here what I see happen often. Somebody in our community that we, that we love uh, and that we say we love and we profess to love begins to go through tribulation, hard times in their lives. And what we do, thinking we are loving people, is we love to just swoop in, drop some knowledge... Give them advice, I'm sick of advice, give them counsel and help and say, if you just follow this to a T, you will be fixed. And then we fly off with our capes into the sunset, go on with our lives, and then immediately get extremely discouraged because that person doesn't change, doesn't follow advice, doesn't do what we tell them to do. And we, we start losing hope. We start losing hope. Why does this keep happening? And, and the reason why we're losing hope is because we're hoping in the wrong thing. We're hoping in them. We're hoping in their ability. We're hoping in the transformation and the comfort and the change of their own lives. But why he points us to hope, because if you're going to genuinely love, your hope has to be fixed in the right place. And that hope is not in 
people. That hope is not in the situations and the things around you. Our hope, as we studied, even as we were talking about this new creation, that God is going to come and that the God who, who, who created all things and the God who had dealt with sin in Christ and has given us this great hope in Christ, that that Jesus, that that spirit, that that God has this great and glorious plan that even in the midst of this turmoil and struggle and pain and confusion and all the things that we are in, that we have Christ as this place of fixed point, but that he is taking us into a great and glorious hope, that this God is taking us into a perfect place, into a place where all sin is removed, into a place where all of this will be fixed, into a place where God is going to have his rule and reign, and the people of God will live joyfully, rejoicing in the work of the Son, rejoicing in the work of our Father. And when that is our fixed hope, and when we are hoping in the right thing, we then can do what this next statement says. Be patient in tribulation. We can be patient in tribulation. This is an interesting one because many of people think that what is being said in verse 12 in be patient in tribulation speaks individually. Now, possibly it could speak individually in the sense of it going, listen, in the midst of tribulations in your life, you need to be patient. Absolutely. But that does go against even, even what we believe about tribulation. Even in our own tribulation, when we're passionately involved, we're not worried about being patient. We're worried about fixing it. We're worried about taking care of it. We're worried about getting out of it. Not about being patient. But I think this verse pushes deeper than just your own personal patience in your own personal tribulation. Tim Keller uh, comments on this, and the quote will be on the screen, but he says this, Perhaps Paul means just that we are to be models to other brothers and sisters when we go through difficulties. But it may be that we are to meet the troubles of Christian relationships with patience and prayer. To be involved deeply in people's lives is hard work. And here's what C.S. Lewis said. He says this, that only, the only way to be sure you never have your heart broken is to never give it to anyone. Could it be that genuine love, when he says be patient in tribulation doesn't just mean that you need to be an example when you're going through hard times, but it means you need to take on other people's drama and not just your own. I've seen this happen so many times, including myself. Once a relationship starts to have drama on the other person's side, we go, I don't need that drama. I got my own drama. You can leave the drama for your mama, you know. <laughs> I don't need drama. And we feel completely justified in the fact that once a relationship begins to get tribulation in it, and once that person begins to go hard through hard times, and once it costs us our own, our own comfort, then we can easily pull away. Now, what I'm not saying is that we should get wrapped up in drama and that we should not have tough love sometimes and sometimes we need to discipline and love and sometimes we need to stay away and sometimes we need to 
push in. But what I am saying is sometimes it is extremely, most of the time it's too easy for us to walk away from somebody who's going through a hard time. Listen, when we understand the gospel, the real test of our love is not when we are going through tribulation and we're patient. Because we have to be patient in our own tribulation. But it is when we are patient in the tribulations of others. Patience. Not trying to fix their problems, but patiently enduring tribulation with them. How do I know he's saying don't try to fix their problems? Because some of us love the idea of just swooping in, giving some counsel, and fixing their problems. And when they don't get fixed, we get really frustrated. How do I know he's not saying try to fix their problems? And here's the reason why. Because he says be patient, and then it leads to this next statement. Be fervent in prayer. This is the kind of tribulation where you have no advice or counsel or just do this and it will be fixed this is the kind of tribulation where you have nothing to do but pray and and when i say that statement i've heard this multiple times out of multiple mouths so i hope that we can at least check our own hearts on this when we say things like this prayer i'm praying but it doesn't seem like enough i feel like i should do more than pray i want to come in and fix it i feel like i should do more than pray and we continue to let prayer just kind of fall down like prayer is just the smallest thing that we can do and there's a ton of other things that we should be doing but what this text points to is that fervent prayer is the overarching thing that we should be doing that when we enter into people's tribulations and get into their lives it's not just about us giving counsel counsel should flow out of prayer Action should flow out of prayer. Prayer and fervent prayer should be the first and overarching thing of the whole time that we are entering into tribulation. Because I tell you, if you haven't entered into somebody's life so deeply that when they get into the midst of tribulation and they come to you and they're sharing their heart and they're sharing all the things that are going on to them and happening to them and they're saying, what should I do? And you, in all honesty, are just trying to find an answer to get them some relief. And instead you just say, I have no clue, but we should pray. Because some of us can find what we think are perceived needs, and we're going to talk about this next Sunday, things that we think will fix their problems. But what we need to learn through prayer is, what is God doing in their lives, and how can I enter into that tribulation with them so that he can make himself known so that if we need to be patient in this, walk through it. I could just drop money on this. I could just try to relieve the pressure. I could just try to drop counsel. But in order to enter into tribulation and be patient with them and pray with them means I'm going to have to sit in this for a while. Crying out with your family. Crying out to your father. Not just saying I will pray for you, but living in this constant state of prayer. Isn't it amazing how many of us talk about how hard it is to have a consistent prayer life and the reason why 
is because we think prayer is a religious duty that we have as the people of God. We just got to pray. But isn't it amazing how consistent and real your prayer life is when you find yourself in these kinds of situations? When you find yourself so embedded in the mission of God and so embedded into community, prayer is like breathing. It's not just something we have to do. It's something we do because we don't know all the answers. We see the things happening in our lives and in others. We're entered into that, and we don't know what to do, and we run to God in fervent prayer, and it flows out of us. It's spirit-led, fervent prayer. How should we respond in genuine love? What should we do? We have our hope fixed in the right place. We're patient in the midst of tribulation. We're not just trying to bring comfort. And, and we're not just trying to fix everything. We're committed to fervent prayer. Where do we see this kind of love? Well, Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 points us to Christ. It says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do that kind of endurance? How do we endure that way? He says this, look to Jesus. The founder and the perfecter of our faith. And here's what Jesus did. For the joy that was set before him, his hope was fixed in the right place. He endured the cross. He was patient in enduring the cross. He endured. He entered into, instead of just checking out of our lives, he entered into this world and he took upon himself our sin, our brokenness, our tribulation. He took it upon himself, despising the shame. And where is he seated? He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Scripture shows us what is he doing. He's praying. This is not just an example, this is a model. Jesus had his hope in the right place, endured patiently, took upon himself our sins and brokenness, and what else did he do? He's seated at the right hand of the Father in fervent prayer. How does this live itself out in our lives? When you hear this kind of love, it doesn't go, oh, I can do this. Everybody in this room, if they're really listening, is going, I can't do this. And you're responding one of two ways. Either you're going, I need your spirit. I need your help, God. If I'm going to love this way, I need you in my life. I need you to work in me. Please come and give me the power and strength to do this. Or you're going, there's no way to do this kind of love. Only Jesus could do that. I could never do that. And you are giving yourself a out. Church, please. Please listen to what I'm saying. I'm not giving you a checklist of things to do because this will frustrate that checklist because all of you are going to come up with scenarios. What do I do in this scenario? How do I do this? How do I handle this person? What do I do in this situation? Do I pull away? Do I push in? Do I say something? Do I not say something? What do I do? Pray. 
because you need the help and the strength and the wisdom of God. But if you are in a place where you are patiently enduring and you have your hope fixed in the right place, I'm going to tell you this. You're going to be constantly, fervently praying, asking God, how does love look in this situation? I have your love in me. I've been shown this love. How does it look? And it's going to be sacrificial. And it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you time. It's going to cost you comfort. It's going to cost you in every way. But you know what it is? For the first time in your life, you're going to experience and know and be a part of genuine love. As we come to these tables, in this cup today, you can see that there's just one plate, and that's if you pull one of the cups out, it has bread at the bottom and, and the juice at the top, and you can just take it back to your seat with you. But here's what I want you to remember as we partake in communion together today. The reason why we come to this table is much to why we come to a table and eat food and drink day in and day out. Some of us do it for pleasure, and there's, there's good reasons to do that. F food can taste good, but for the most part, if we don't eat and we don't drink, we don't live. Food and drink feeds our physical body and empowers us to live. That's what we do. Why do we come together and as often as we gather are we to partake of communion? Because what he's showing us is unless we regularly remind ourselves and regularly drink and eat of his body and blood, we don't live by the Spirit. We don't live. This, this food, this bread, this body empowers us to not just look at the kind of love Christ had, but empowers us to live the kind of love Christ has. The reason we come to this table is because we're in covenant with God. It's not a religious routine. It's not just something we do. And that's why the church has been so, rightly so, what they call guard the tables, that these tables are only supposed to meant to be for those who are in covenant with God. They're not just coming up here to go, oh, I need to do this today and God will forgive me. It's not just a religious routine. What it is is that we repent and we, we, we lay ourselves before God and we rejoice in his love and grace for us. And as he has given us his body in that moment, we are also in covenant relationship, giving our bodies to him. Now, you've given your body. I want to present my body to you that as you are coming and partaking of his body and blood you are in return presenting your bodies and body, bodies to him in the covenantal fashion so today as you walk up this center aisle as you take this cup remember this is primarily you looking at the source of love how much he's loved you focusing in on his grace and mercy and as that is a fixed point in our worship that it sinks so, so deep in our hearts that it begins to empower us, convict us, and help us to love others. So let this be a time of remembrance, reflection, and commitment to God that I want to live by your spirit in this loving way. God, I thank you for your spirit. I thank you for the work of the gospel that has been 
shown to us through you having your hope fixed in the right place, you enduring the cross and entering into our world, giving us all that we need, taking on our burdens. Sitting at the right hand of the Father, making constant prayer and intercession for us. God, as we see that in you, we admit our deepest brokenness. We cannot love this way unless your spirit lives in us and works through us. We cannot because many of us in our own minds are thinking of situations and what do we do and how do we do this and what do we but God I pray that we would no longer use that excuse that we don't know love but that today we would say I do know love. I see it in Christ. I see it in his work. I see it in God. I see it in this act of communion. No longer would we say, I don't know how, I can't, but that our answer would be only by your Spirit, God. Help us, empower us, direct us. So let this time be a time of prayer, commitment, response, worship, contemplation. Church, let's respond by coming up the center aisles and responding in communion and prayer.